Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Dean Kernett joining us now, Macro Risk Advisor CEO. Dean, can we just start with a little bit of a clinic on the volatility term structure, what it is, and the story around the election that's been priced in and now being priced out? Right. So when we look at uh, volatility, we can look at it. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, we can, we can hear you, hear you Dave. Oh, sorry. Um, yes. Uh, when we look at volatility, we, we can look at it both across uh, strike and then across time. So uh, when we look at it across time, that's, uh, John, as you say, the, this thing called the volatility term structure. So we can look at the VIX. We can look at VIX futures that expire in October, November, December. And because there's been this date-certain event on the calendar, the election, uh, for months, the market has differentiated sometimes strongly between options uh, and volatility futures that expire before or after the election with the premise that the election would create uh, two things. One, a potentially significant move in the S&P in and around the date itself, so the outcome would result in a lot of volatility in the S&P. And then the second one is that uh, the market, at least as of a couple weeks ago, started to think that um, this, this notion of a contested election would lead to volatility on an ongoing basis. So we started to see longer dated VIX futures, those that expire in December and January, also uh, bid up right. quite a bit. Well, uh, a clinic, so it's, been, it's been interesting. A clinic there on the VIX. Dean Kernett with us, and he will continue with us through this important hour on the game theory of volatility and how it folds into futures up 15. Right now, we need to listen to a moment in Sweden today. Once a year in October, we listen. This year's prize is about auctions. Första, andra, tredje. The Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences has today decided to award the Sveriges Riksbank Prize in Economic Sciences in memory of Alfred Nobel, jointly to Paul R. Milgram and Robert B. Wilson, for improvements to auction theory and invention of new auction formats. And a celebration today in Palo Alto, California, more than anywhere else, at Stanford at University. I think of a frequent guest, Michael Spence, and all of his leadership and academics at Stanford. And it devolves down to the leadership and intellect of Robert Wilson out of Nebraska with his academics at Harvard. And he has held court since 1968 on the theory of syndicates at Stanford University. Professor Wilson, for all of us, for Michael McKee, congratulations uh, on this award. Were you surprised? Yes, I was surprised because it seemed like the, the time had long passed. Most of the interest in auctions peaked, you know, 10, 20 years ago. Yeah. You know, I look, Professor Wilson, at this, and we know from Stanford the monetary theory of John B. Taylor and the Hoover Institution and such. Describe what auction theory means for our organization, for our societal organization, where Stanford has led for 40 years. Well, we think of it more generally in terms of market design, that there are many ways in which the institutions, the procedural rules, and so on, of the ways in which we allocate resources can be improved. A lot of times uh, these interventions are really, uh, let's say, minor changes on the margin, but in some cases they create entirely new markets. 
So we saw that in the spectrum auctions, but uh, my colleague Alvin Roth, you know, he worked on a market for exchange of kidneys among right. donor, donors and recipients. So there, there are many novel applications uh, in which we create markets, people participate, and they work, can work efficiently and with good incentives. Well, you're modest there. Then Elvin Roth studied under you at Stanford a few years ago. I think, Robert Wilson, of all this, and what I think of is my colleague John Farrow bidding for a piece of art at Christie's in London. Your work goes so far beyond the auctions that we understand, the auctions of the art market, or maybe the auctions for a foreclosed house. What does our audience worldwide need to know about where the science of auctions is going and what it means for us worldwide? Well, we deal with very complex uh, multi-commodity kinds of situations. So there are many different spectrum uh, licenses. In electricity, we're talking about electricity at various times and various places. So these are, are ones which were systems which were allocating uh, a huge variety of resources uh, continuously over time. In the case of electricity, uh, it's uh, a complex, uh, so much more complex than a single uh, piece of art being auctioned under a gavel and then the next one and then the next one. Instead, these are cases in which people are trying to buy or sell uh, like packages of things. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or in the sense of electricity, you have to have the energy, the transmission lines, the, all of the connections that are necessary. So you're bidding for a uh, complex commodity, and there are many of them. Professor, this is an incredibly relevant field of study in our digital era, as well as an era of central bank intervention, where a lot of people are wondering whether efficient markets still exist among public equities and public debt. I know you focus on the less mainstream asset classes and how to auction them efficiently, but based on your intensive knowledge of efficient markets, how inefficient have public markets gotten with that central bank intervention? <laughs> That's way beyond my expertise, I'm afraid. I couldn't give a reliable answer. Sorry. All right. Well, in, in, that, in that case, are there other asset classes that you foresee moving to a, a sort of auction format in our digital era that perhaps haven't been thought of in that way? Well, uh, a good one to think about is uh, something like electricity, because we have all these uh, needs now for uh, solar-powered uh, energy from from solar power and from wind, and it's quite variable. So we need to create new kinds of markets for uh, those kinds of variable resources, you know, to, to keep the supply provided to beat the demand. Right. So that, that's a, a new and different kind of application. Robert Wilson, I want to take you beyond the theory of syndicates and what seems like ancient auction theory to what we're dealing with every day, which is our new digital dominance. The auctions that take part, obviously on eBay, but far more the auctions and the information flow led by Apple, led by Google, and the rest as well. What do you presume to be the future for how we bid each day within technology? Well, I think if you take those kinds of auctions as examples, what you see is they're mostly automated, that these are they're done uh, minute by minute or second by second, and they're done 
uh, with uh, bidding uh, bots, you know, robots or algorithmic methods. So there's a continuous reallocation of resources. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that in many fields. Robert Wilson, thank you so much for joining us. The Nobel Prize winner with uh, Professor Milgram, Paul Milgram, as well. Michael McKee and I say thank you, as does all of Bloomberg at Economics. John? Just a cool $1.1 million prize this year, Tom. An upgrade from the year before. So we see how you can put that money to work with Dean Kern and a macro risk advisor. I think Dean, we should. How the professor get a trade? How the professor get a trade, Dean? We were talking about the volatility term structure just before turning to him. It's been faded, volatility in the back half of this year over the last couple of weeks. How do you navigate these issues now, Dean? I think one of the things we should really step back and contemplate in terms of volatility is that, like any market, it's just a it's a an outcome of supply and demand. Uh, meaning, you know, the price of volatility in the market just reflects where two people found a way to do a trade. And one of the dynamics that was occurring over the summer that started to ease off is this tech stock mania. Uh, so look at indices like the New York Fang Index, or just pick Tesla or Amazon. The speed with which these stocks were going up, and then the retail, almost reflexive participation in that, led to a tremendous amount of call buying in the high-flying tech stocks. And if you look almost to the day when the tech stocks peaked, right around the first day of September, uh, since then, as things have been um, you know, down a little bit, not tremendously, but certainly not that high performance to the upside, the volumes in tech stock options have declined, in some cases, dramatically. And so what, what's happened is, again, thinking about it from a supply-demand perspective, the demand for optionality in the market has started to recede because the payoff to being long upside calls has started to recede. And so that's one part of the story, is that uh, because there's less demand, the price of volatility is going down. Um, so as we start to try to disentangle what's happening, some of it I do think is Biden pulling away sufficiently such that this notion of a contested election may be less of an issue for the market. Um, but, but again, some of it is just a, a fall off in demand, and that's allowing volatility to clear the market at, at a lower level than it was doing you know, in the peak uh, several weeks ago. So, Dean, I had this conversation with Mohamed Alerian on Friday, and I do think it's important that price seems to be shaping narrative. It's not the narrative driving the price. Do you see some of that going on here as well? Oh, tremendous amount. I mean, the street is in some ways hopelessly addicted to backfilling the narrative. Um, there's a lot of confirmation bias in it. Um, you know, we stare at prices and we try to figure out what the market's telling us. I think that's a useful exercise. We're supposed to do it. Uh, but uh, again, I think a, a framework that brings to light just this notion of, of supply and demand, um, especially as it comes to vol, it's been a, a really interesting year for volatility because we've had a couple of these dynamics. One, as I mentioned, this incredible demand uh, from an unusual source, the retail source for, for calls. Uh, in tech stocks. And then the second one, um, I'd point to two things on the supply side of volatility that are important. One, uh, March was uh, a, a year even worse than the worst part of 2008 in terms of the explosion of volatility and what it did to short volatility strategies. There was a massive destruction of capital uh, in the space. So all else equal, there's less supply uh, of volatility. And then the second thing is just in and around the election, an incredibly political event for our country, polarizing, but even for the markets themselves. My sense is, and just talking to people, that um, risk managers would, would prefer not to lose money on the election. You know, it's, it's one of these things that 
uh, as especially as time draws nearer, I think people's risk limits are going to be called into question, and uh, the ability to provide capital, uh, you know, hedging type capital into that event is going to be called into question. Now, again, it, it may be a little bit less so if if the uh, market becomes so convinced that a Biden uh, uh, win is is uh, you know baked in the cake, and the Senate win. Uh, increasingly as well is baked in the cake. But um, I think that's just another thing to really watch is the, the street's ability to provide hedges over this period uh, is compromised by just the unusual nature of the event and the reality that it's just not analyzable in the, in the traditional sense that Wall Street likes to analyze things. Dean, given where positioning is now and given the fact there does seem to be a complacency around a bull, a long call, how susceptible are markets right now to a violent move should there be a contested election or an outcome that people aren't expecting? Right. Well, I, I think price would tell you more so than a couple of weeks ago, as, as John pointed out. There, there's been a fading of, of uh, things that measure volatility, whether it's option prices or VIX futures. Uh, December VIX futures are down from 32 to 28 over the last couple of weeks. Yep. That's actually a quite, quite a big move for that. So I think more so than the peak a couple of weeks ago. There, there is this complacency and a risk. I think one of the big risks is that the polls start to narrow uh, significantly. I think that's going to you know, uh, enable Trump to potentially gin up controversy. And uh, I think the market will be uh, not well suited for that, given current pricing. Uh, Dean Kernan, thank you so much. Macro Risk Advisors. Betsy Stevenson joins now at Michigan, the Ford School at Michigan professor of public policy. Betsy, what I want to do to start is go back to first principles, which you know is Carl Case, who I'm sure you studied with at Wellesley a few years ago. The first principle is if you have debt, you need economic growth and a growth rate that is better than good. Are we anyway certain that we will have a growth rate to help us out of this huge amount of debt? Well, you know, the thing is, we got to do the stimulus spending in order to get the growth rate that will uh, help us out of the debt. I mean, it, it is absolutely the case that one of the best ways to deal with debt is just to grow so fast yeah. that the debt shrinks as a percent of GDP. But, you know, what you were, the idea that when the stimulus comes, that it needs to come fast, that the whole point there is that we need to restore potential GDP. We need to be able to get to potential and go back to growing. If we put ourselves on a permanently lower level of GDP, so we're, we're sort of never quite getting back to, to potential in a lower growth path, so we're never like, quite back to where we were, well, then that's a problem. And you know, there's lots of reasons we could end up doing a lot of permanent destruction. The more businesses that would have been viable that would be hard to to put back together again that disappear um, that causes problems families that you know go through bankruptcy that are just never quite able to get back on their feet again these things happen and that's why it's so important for government to respond in a timely way but it's also important for government to respond in a timely way because it alleviates the suffering so we can tell the economic story mm -hmm. really you know get us back to, to where we were as quickly as possible, get us on a strong right. um, 
pass, but realize every day they delay, there's somebody who's not putting food on the table who's at risk of losing their home. I don't need a single point estimate from you because that's what we do in market economics, and you're clearly under the academic purview. But where is potential GDP? There's a belief in mourning in America that we go back nostalgically to a time of what we would call substantial GDP growth. Are those days gone? Well, I mean, you know, I, you guys know the whole secular stagnation argument uh, as well as, as I do. Um, you know, estimates I've seen of, of where growth can be is that it's, it's lower. You know, there's concern that we've run out of ideas in a way that's just going to make it harder for us to, to, you know, grow faster. But I have to tell you, you know, I go to uh, uh, tech conferences every year, sort of, uh, is artificial intelligence going to take our jobs? but make us rich. And I, I'm impressed every year by the amount of progress I'm seeing there. So I think there's actually, you know, a lot of room for us to do things better, faster, cheaper. That's where our growth comes from. And, and I'm always an optimist we can do it. I also think we have a lot of untapped potential in people. Um, and that's why investing in people is so important, because if we can harness all that untapped potential. You know, that's what will fuel growth and realize if you, you know, if you go back to the 1970s, 1980s, you know, a large chunk of our growth just came from the rise in female labor force participation. If female labor force participation in 2019 had been back where it was in the 1970s, our GDP would be about 15% smaller. So just think about that and then realize that women's labor force participation right now is back where it was in the mid prime age women's labor force participation is back where it was in the mid 1980s. So if you want us to get back, we got to get all these people back in the labor force. So Betsy, two really powerful concepts you've touched on in just five minutes. Something that I've heard from other prominent economists as well, the longer we are below potential, the lower potential growth might be in the future. But when you talk about policy, you're talking about structural initiatives as well, not just throwing money at the issue of the moment. Bessie, can you put those two concepts together and the urgency to do something quickly? Well, I think, you know, we need to do something quickly. And that's the idea that we need to get money out the door. And that's, you know, the same thing that they did with the CARES Act. I think that's money to individuals, to families, to make sure that they can keep spending so that we don't end up with demand-driven problems. Um, and we are seeing demand-driven problems starting to pick up. We saw demand-driven problems were huge in the spring. So that's getting money to people. You get money to businesses to help businesses that can make it to the other side survive. We're going to lose some of some businesses for sure. And that's why the next step for government is going to be thinking about how do we transition people how do we provide the job training programs? How do we provide the liquidity in markets for new businesses to be able to get started? How do we foster the creation of change? And there, I think we, we need a government with as strong a set of plans on that as on the stimulus package. And so I think the second is what we're going to have to wait and see after the election, just because I think no, nobody can take um, that kind of strong initiative now. But no, that would be where I would hope we see, you know, 
in the early spring of next year, you know, comprehensive plans around how we move the economy to the next stage, because there is going to be some permanent realignment, some permanent sectoral shifts. To build on what John was talking about with the timing of this plan, on it, maybe not the one next year that focuses more on these skills gap issues that you focus on, is the question of fiscal austerity at a state level. The idea that states and local governments are saying to the federal government, we can't go into debt the way that you can, and we are running out of cash. We're going to have to lay people off and cut services. How different is the scarring that comes from an acceleration of fiscal austerity on the state level that you see as posing a risk to the economy if there isn't this near-term fiscal support bill that's passed? So I, I think that the fiscal austerity the states go through um, in modern times has really cause recessions to drag on, to deepen, um, and it's the case that you know, the federal government should just prevent that from happening. But it's even worse right now, because what happens if the states have to start laying off teachers, which they will? Um, we're already in a situation where there are a lot of parents who have cut back hours or who have quit jobs because they've got kids at home from school. And we've got a lot of kids who are struggling from you know, this period of you know, eight-ish months where their school hasn't been normal, they're going to be going back to school in a world where they're, you know, wearing, the ones who are, are in school are in a, in a world where they're wearing masks, they have to keep distance. How do we do that with fewer teachers in the classroom? Do parents feel comfortable that that's the place they can send their kids? Um, and what we're doing with these kids, you know, I just saw, Someone talk about future U.S. productivity and future U.S. growth, and he was saying, you know, one of the big open questions is what are we doing with these kids, and is there some sort of permanent loss of human capital? So this could not be a worse recession for states to have to lay off um, state and local workers. And, um, you know, is there is there permanent, you know, problems there? It really depends on, on what, what they're choosing to do. Are they having rolling furloughs? that will cause a lot of um, a lot of harm and hurt in in terms of state employees households um, but maybe we'll keep them attached to the job or do we see you know government workers decide that you know it's not worth it they're not going to stick it to these jobs or do they do permanent layoffs um, in particular one thing i don't hear anybody talking about is we've never seen such a decline in the labor force participation of people over the age of 55. And I think you're going to see a lot of older workers deciding to retire a little bit early, and that's going to put enormous strain on Social Security, on Medicare, um, as well as, again, you know, on the economy as we take all these experienced people out early. That's going to give us a bumpy road over the next five years if we're sort of losing too many older workers at once. Betsy, great to catch up on a really important policy conversation. Betsy Stevenson there, Professor of Public Policy and Economics at the University of Michigan. Right now, Paul Donovan, to get to it very quickly here with UBS and their global chief economist. In the zeitgeist uh, this weekend, Paul, there's no question about it. Can you believe China's recovery? Can you? Yes, I think China has had a, a genuine recovery. China's recovery was very different from what we saw in Europe and in the States, because in Europe and in the States, people acquired savings during lockdown. And then as soon as they're released from lockdown, 
you know, you've just spent three months sat at home watching home makeover shows on Netflix. What are you going to do? You're going to go rush out and spend the money. And that's exactly what happened. And once you've spent the savings, then obviously the momentum slows. Slowing fourth quarter momentum is hardly a surprise. You know, every economist was expecting this to happen. But China didn't have that model because in China's lockdown, people weren't able to accumulate savings. Uh, they uh, were having to live off their savings because there's a far less uh, efficient social security net. So what's happened in China is that there was a pause before the domestic consumption started to kick in. And that coincided with the recovery in demand that mm -hmm. we've been seeing in Europe and in the States. Can you bring that recovery in demand over to GDP in the U.S. and in Europe. And by that, I mean equity markets today, Dow 28,581, SPX almost up to 3,500, almost out near record highs. We're a bit away from that. I don't want to oversell that. But, Paul, can you look at the expectation of the equity markets and how far out do you get that real GDP that goes with that? Well, we've got to remember, of course, that there is a there's a really important distinction that, that the equity markets are just a subset of GDP and listed companies are not actually nearly as important as people think that they are. Um, and so what we're looking at here is a GDP environment where a lot of the negatives on GDP are actually in sectors a million miles away from listed equities. So it's, you know, it's the small restaurants that are suffering. It's the small service sector businesses that are suffering. These are not listed companies. These are mom and pop stores. They're not, they're not in a position uh, to be you know, quoted on equity markets. The listed market tends to be more biased towards the manufacturing sector. Manufacturing is doing better than services. It's got better access to capital. It's got better control of its costs. You know, the listed sector is going to outperform GDP in this environment. And that, of course, is exactly what we're seeing happen. Paul, I'd love for you to compare and contrast what's happening in the United States and Europe, not just the US and Europe versus China. There's a trade that's become really popular in the bond market over the last several weeks. I'm sure you're familiar. Short treasuries, get long Europe, just the idea that this US recovery continues and it stalls in Europe. What you're seeing right now, just the trajectory of the respective recoveries, does it speak to that? Well, not really, I would say. So what we're seeing now is a shift. So as I said, you know, we've had this surge of consumer spending fueled by the savings accumulated in lockdown. That's pretty much universal in the developed world. And that's your third quarter story, record third quarters. As we go through the fourth quarter and into next year, fiscal policy is going to start playing a larger role. And there we're going to have, I think, um, some issues. Now, uh, you know, depending on the election result, we might get a large fiscal stimulus in the states in January. But of course, you know, the, the, the negotiations in Washington at the moment you know, rival Brexit for the, you know, the delays and the chaos and the internal tedium of, of what's going on. So the failure to do fiscal stimulus now is actually doing real damage to the US economy. First, because if you're unfortunate enough to be unemployed, you are clearly on a far lower income than you were. And second, and, and economically this is very important, if you are afraid that you might become unemployed, that fear of a loss of income in unemployment is likely to delay spending. 
And so what we're getting here is, is two hits to the consumer through fiscal policy. Now, that's not in evidence in Europe. Uh, in Europe, we are seeing the number of people on furlough fall, but that's because they're being rehired, not because they're being made unemployed. And so I think that the fiscal policies on the two sides are creating slightly different stories at the moment. The US will grow faster than Europe simply because of demographics. I mean, there's no surprise about that. We know uh, that. But I think actually Europe's fiscal policy at the moment is, is clearly supportive. The US, we've got this cloud of uncertainty over the fiscal support. So this is slightly contrarian, Paul, and I stress this is relative to expectations and anecdotally just the conversations we would have on a programme like this. But you seem less constructive on the US recovery than, say, most. Well, I'm still constructive. I mean, the recovery carries on in the fourth quarter. Uh, I think, though, that we are seeing some damage to the recovery come through from the, um, the indecisiveness over fiscal policy in the United States. I mean, there are plenty of people who are relatively secure in their jobs. They'll continue to spend. They'll spend down their savings. That's all great. If you look at the employment participation in the States, it's very interesting. The High-skilled people, people who've got college degrees, they've got pretty much normal employment participation. Low-skilled people, people who fail to graduate high school, uh, have also got almost normal employment participation. The area where employment has been weakest has been people who graduated high school but did not go to college. Uh, and that, of course, is an area where... Uh, you're likely to see quite a lot of service sector jobs. You know, these are the jobs which are at risk in the fourth industrial revolution. But that's the area of weakness. And I would argue that fiscal policy today is not doing much to help that particular cohort in a way that perhaps it is helping in Europe. On both sides of the uh, Atlantic, however, in the U.S. and the U.K. and the rest of Europe, you're seeing this bifurcation that you talked of earlier, you touched on, of big companies doing better or having a better chance of surviving while smaller businesses go out of business at the fastest pace, in some cases, on record. And there was a statistic in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend showing that smaller businesses account for an incredibly shrinking portion of overall employment in the U.S. and around the world. How much does that hamper? for global growth going forward? Well, now, this, I think, is a really interesting issue because you're quite right, of course. We're seeing lots and lots of small businesses close, but we're also seeing a phenomenal pace of small business creation at the moment. I mean, it's, it's absolutely staggering, the rate of small business creation. And it's not just the States. This is the UK. This is France. This is Singapore. This is Japan. I mean, it's, it's across the board. And we're talking sort of business creation rates of 100 150% growth. I mean, these are not small numbers. So what I think is going on here is we're seeing lots of people set up individual businesses. You know, single proprietors are setting up businesses. You know, you've, you've had some time to reflect at home over the last few months, and you've decided that you know, now is the time to start selling your hand-knitted sweaters on eBay or you know, you're uh, going to convert your TikTok account into merchandise sales or whatever it is. Now, that, I think, raises a really interesting question about the future and, and about how we think about employment, because I think we end up having multiple uh, income streams become a lot more common. So you'll have somebody who maybe has a, a, a job, full-time job, part-time job, but then they've maybe got a, a sideline, uh, be that you know, Airbnb or selling over uh, social media, whatever it is. And so you have these multiple income streams. So there are positive as well as negative signals in business creation at the moment. And I think that what we've got to try and do is understand how the structural changes of the economy, which we're you know, 
rapidly going through at the moment might actually be changing our concept about you know, what it is to actually be employed you know, and how people actually get income in the, the months and years ahead. Hey, Paul, great to catch up. That final topic that Lisa introduced, really important. We could continue this conversation for a long time. Paul Donovan of UBS. Paul, thank you, sir. This is a shame that this is too short an interview. With the announcement of the laureates today, uh, Mr. Wilson and Mr. Milgram, I simply sent one note. Get me Michael Spence. And, of course, you know Mr. Spence. Professor Spence, of course, has spent some generous time with us over the years. What you may not know is arguably he reinvented graduate studies in America with his work over a decade at Stanford. At the time, it was absolutely historic. And rather than talk about auction theory today, we will talk about the wonderful milieu that is Palo Alto, California, and what it did for Robert Wilson and his Ph.D. student, uh, Paul Milgram, as well. Michael Spence, thank you so much for joining us. A special day for Wilson and Milgram. What is in the air in Palo Alto? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a wonderful intellectual environment. And, you know, I think Bob Wilson deserves a lot of the credit for that. Uh, you know, he, he brought along a whole lot of students. Uh, his intellectual insight and depth is extraordinary. It's just a very exciting environment. Uh, I mean, there are others in, in other parts of the country, but... Uh, but that, that this this is a wonderful recognition of both of their work, but also, I think you're right, Tom. Indirectly, it's a recognition of the the fertility of that intellectual environment. The word that is so associated across degrees at Stanford is a strange word, organizational. And I, you know, you go back to Theory of Syndicates, 1968, and Wilson's seminal paper on all this, folks. It was like Dylan at Newport. It was all original when he did this in 1968. What does organizational mean, Professor Spence, within the Stanford architecture? Well, I think, you know, the, the, what, what's really special about the work that's gone on there, you know, it's, uh, it's you know, Paul and uh, Bob Wilson, Dave Krebs, uh, John Roberts, who was a co-author with... Uh, with Paul Milgram, you know, they brought theory to things that were talked about in a kind of fuzzy way. Theory and rigor, uh, the things that were talked about in uh, in more general terms, is I guess the way I would put it, Tom. And it just had an enormous impact yeah. on uh, on a wide range of disciplines, especially economics. On this special day, an offspring of the Stanford experiment, Lisa Abramowitz joins. Lisa, you grew up with this foolishness, right? Yes, my father got his PhD at Stanford, and I will say, theory uh, ruled the dining room table, and if you couldn't pass muster, it was, well, it explains a lot. I will say, uh, you know, there is this question, uh, though, at this at this point, when we take a look at the concept of of auction theory. Paul, can you come in and talk about why it's important? Some people might look at this and say, isn't this somewhat peripheral? It's not. It's central. Why? Well, I, I mean, I think it's central because there's because uh, it's used to allocate some of the most important re resources that we have. I mean, there are private auctions, you know, there are auction houses and all that, but I don't think that's the reason it attracts mm -hmm. the attention it does. The reason it attracts the attention is because we allocate, you know, the electromagnetic spectrum doing this. 
um, in much, much more effective ways. So I think that's where, you know, enormous impact has come. And what they've been recognized for is having brought first theory and then real innovation right. to how these auctions are conducted. Professor Spence, one final question in your busy day. I know that, yes. that your phone is ringing off the hook. To most of us, an auction is in a James Bond movie where there's some piece of art at Christie's or Sotheby's being sold and all that. Yeah. But we live auctions each and every day. Are, are auctions changing because of the speed and depth of technology? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I put it more generally, Tom. Um, markets, you know, including auction markets are changing because of the vast quantity of information that's available at, you know, negligible cost that wasn't there before, and because of, you know, what's now called artificial intelligence, but it's the ability to process that information. That's, mm -hmm. that's changing the informational structure, and a lot of the innovation in auction theory, Tom and Lisa, has been, you know, recognizing very particular characteristics uh, informational, structural characteristics of different kinds of auction situations, and that and and digital technology is transforming that. Michael Spence, a Philip Knight Professor and Dean Emeritus, Stanford University from Milan, Italy, today on Wilson and Milgram. Uh, Michael Spence, thank you so much for joining us here on Short Notice. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.